Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Ira Lapidus. Ira is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of California at Berkeley. He was formerly Professor of History and he was the founding chairman of the Center for Middle East Studies on the Berkeley campus. He has traveled extensively across the Muslim world and written many articles and books on Islam and related subjects. His publications include Islam, Politics and Social Movements, edited with Edmund Burke, and Contemporary Islamic Movements in Historical Perspective. He is also the author of A History of Islamic Societies, which was published in 1988 and has recently been issued again in a second edition. Ira, welcome back to Berkeley. Thank you, Harry. Where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised there. I went to high school there. And then I went to college and graduate school at Harvard. And looking back, uh, how did your parents... Uh, uh, shape your thinking about the world? Hmm. Uh, my parents were immigrants, and I guess the principal lesson in our family was you had to get an education. They, they worked hard for a living, and they wanted my brother and I to be professionals. So they raised us with the expectation we'd go to college and that we'd make our contribution to the world in some profession. As you were growing up, did you have any teachers that, that really... Uh, shape the course of your life? Oh, yeah, the, the, very much. Uh, any yeah. in particular you'd like to well, I had a, I had a high school teacher. Uh, his name was Morris Cohen, and he uh, tutored me and prepared me for college. My high school was a big urban high school. Uh, it what sent, was its name? Uh, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, it sent one student every year or two to Harvard, and uh, Mr. Cohen prepared me, uh, you know, for admissions tests and... Uh, and uh, he said to me once, uh, I didn't realize at the time how important this was going to be, he said to me that uh, Asian studies was a really interesting field. This was the early 1950s. And that it was interesting, uh, it was a burgeoning field, growing field, and that it was a field in which you could work on a broad canvas. You didn't have to do micro-research. Mm -hmm. And I guess I must have had this in mind. When I was a junior, I was looking for a class on Asian history, and, uh, this was now a junior? This was now junior at Harvard. Yes, okay. And uh, there were two principal choices, uh, East Asia at 9 in the morning and Middle East at 11. <laughs> so that settled my career <laughs> in, in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. So, so those important uh, uh, moments in time when uh, there's a certain time when a course is being offered and you take it well, and, and uh, there you are. There I am. And, and so was, was it a natural fit? Uh, between you and uh, the study of the Islam, Islamic world? Well, I didn't think about it at the time. I, I liked the course. I liked the teacher. I thought, indeed, he had... This was Sir Hamilton Gibb, who had just come from Oxford to teach at Harvard. And uh, he had just what I liked, a broad overview, a vision mm -hmm. of what history was like and how it had unfolded in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and I grew into the subject, taking one class after another. Uh, I didn't have much of a question as to whether it, it had a fit. I had the kind of imagination uh, that uh, would work in, in, in a field like this. Gibb encouraged me very much to study sociology in particular, also anthropology, political science, so that I would have a, a social science background to bring into my history. Mm -hmm. 
So, so for our audience out there, what what is it? What does it take to be a, a, a historian in addition to being grounded in, in many disciplines you just suggested? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, it takes that. I suppose it takes a desire to get away from everyday life <laughs> I see. and to live in the past. But it also, I think, it also takes a desire to make sense of uh, of. Uh, one's own historical situation and to find a way to order, to organize, to make a, a, a pattern understanding of what the world has been like, how it works, and how we got to, to be here today where we are. So, so does that tell us then what the historical imagination is? There, there is a, an imagination involved in all of this, right? Or? Uh, well, it's a kind of imagination uh, to, to make a new verbal universe that has explanatory power in your own world. Mm-hmm. How do societies uh, come to be they are? Why are political situations uh, worked through the way they are? I can't define that imagination any more precisely for you. Uh, I know that uh, you're also a photographer, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, mm. what is it about photography that attracted you, and does it have any relation... Mm. Uh, or, or what are the differences between doing work in photography and doing work in history? Yeah. Well, the, the big difference and, and the important difference to me is uh, that photography is not verbal. And that, uh, uh, at least when I do photographs, I don't work out an intellectual puzzle so much as I respond to something I see and I try to get it in a mood and in a light and in a composition that I like. And uh, I like music and I, uh, uh, for the same reason that it's not verbal. So that's the contrast. In the photography, I guess the similarity is that I like to make slightly surreal images, images that you don't ordinarily see, mm-hmm. but you can find. I take pictures of reflections on store windows. So maybe there's an analogy. You make up a universe that uh, exists in your mind and then you translate it into an image or into words that you can convey to other people. Now, before we talk about uh, about Islam and Islamic societies, uh, I know you're also a, a world traveler. And w- when did that start? Was it after mm. you were in graduate school, or once you be- became a historian, or when? That started, uh, uh, I got a prize when I graduated from college. Harvard College gave a fellowship for a year of travel anywhere. And uh, the only stipulation of the fellowship was that you not spend more than two months in one place. Hmm. Well, that was just life-saving revelation. Mm. The world, I thought the whole world was college and study. And then I discovered this great world of, uh, of interests. I went to Europe, mm-hmm. and I went to Morocco and to Turkey in, in that year of travels. But that opened my life up. It gave me a lifelong love of travel and new places and new experiences. Uh, in, in studying Islam, I guess there is a uh, it's it's a it's a complex universe, really, yeah. both through through time and history, and then at any particular moment yeah. in time. Absolutely, absolutely, the diversity of it and the differences among people and their beliefs and their lifestyles and their politics is something we don't grasp enough of. Uh, so, but, but let, let's try to get a handle on all of this and, and what we 
what a historian might, in the brief time that we have, help us understand about Islam. And so I guess the first question I have, wh- what are the essential features of, of, of the Islamic belief system? Mm-hmm. Can, can, could you identify that for us? Oh, yeah. Uh, they're actually very familiar. Uh, the belief that there is one God who's created the world, who's put human beings in the world, who's commanded them to uh, act righteously and to behave according to his laws, who's going to judge them at the day of judgment and either reward them with heaven or punish them in hell. Um, It's the same belief system in its fundamental outline as the Judeo-Christian system. But it follows with the idea that the Quran is God's final revelation and Muhammad the last prophet. This is God once again uh, gives human beings a chance to get it right. Uh, it's also, uh, I think, fundamental to Islam is that it, it's, it creates a sense of brotherhood, a sense of community, uh, which is very strong among Muslims and is the basis of, uh, of political loyalty. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little about Muhammad. I mean, he, he, was, he was many things, uh, uh, yeah. both uh, a prophet, a warrior, and, and a statesman. Yes. Well, he, he, he began uh, his, his, uh, his life, his career, uh, as a seeker. He used to go out uh, into the desert mountains uh, for, uh, for silent vigils, and it was in these vigils that he had the first revelations. And the years in Mecca uh, were years of preaching, preaching the imminence of the Last Judgment and calling on people to repent mm-hmm. uh, and to uh, be decent to the poor and to the widows and the orphans. And I think that uh, his experience in Mecca, where he was rejected uh, by his own people, that was his home city, uh, led him on a different path to seek help in neighboring cities, in Medina in particular. And in Medina... Uh, he begins to add a communal and a political dimension to his activities, uh, supporting a community, eventually uh, fighting to defend and to uh, uh, benefit the interests of that community. And that's the precedent that uh, exists all the time. It's that combination of uh, belief in God, uh, moral and ethical behavior, and loyalty to a community that's characteristic of Islam. And of other religions too. It's not unique to Islam by any means. How do you account for uh, the universal appeal of Islam and its yeah. its success in uh, spreading uh, really across the globe? You've actually touched on some of those elements, but talk a little more about that. Yeah. Well, uh, the way I would look at it is there, there are certain elements that are universally appealing. And one, the critical one is that it uh, creates a sense of community and brotherhood. When people convert to Islam, they are joining a community. It's as just as people come to California, when they're newcomers, what do they do? They find a church or a synagogue or a mosque. They join a community. And I think Islam has... Uh, has that potential all over the world. And it often appeals to people in societies that are disorganized or fragmented, uh, uh, clan-type societies, tribal-type societies, 
uh, merchant communities uh, where there are lots of immigrants and newcomers because it gives a sense of belonging. So I think that's a crucial factor. And, of course, the belief system itself is, uh, is uh, extremely appealing to people. It, it uh, appeals to all... I mean, this is... Uh, I think there's a shared Jewish-Christian-Islamic heritage. It's a way of looking at the world in which people find meaning, mm-hmm. and they find the standards of, uh, of uh, righteous behavior. So I think those two elements. But then I would say that... These are, these are general, universal elements, but as Islam spreads, it spreads in particular historical circumstances. Mm. Either a conquest sets off the process of conversions, or an Islamic administration, or the establishment of merchant communities. Uh, sometimes it's the activity of missionary preachers. But there, there's always a, there's a different historical context, a different moment that starts... Uh, the process of winning people over to Islam in different parts of the world. Now, uh, before we get into that dynamic of, of how it, it uh, interacts with these local environments, I mean, obviously there is one pattern, but a diversity of patterns. Uh, I'm curious, Is does, does Islam have special appeal to to people who are oppressed and, and in poverty? You mentioned kind of societies that were were... Uh, 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 fragmented or, or, or yeah. broken and so on. But uh, what about the, 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 this uh, appeal to, to essentially, you know, classes that have not done well because yes. of uh, things that are not necessarily under their control? It, it does definitely have that appeal. But it also appeals to middle classes mm-hmm. and it appeals to political elites. Mm-hmm. So it appeals to different segments of the population for different reasons, and different milieus have a different way of understanding and practicing Islam. Mm-hmm. So it begins, for example, with a conquering elite. The political elite, the Arab conquerors of the Middle East, are first the Muslims and then begin conversions among uh, landowners, uh, government officials, soldiers, merchants, and eventually Islam becomes the religion of, uh, of poor peoples, oppressed peoples, tribal peoples, who resist these political elites in the name of the same religion. So they dispute over which way to interpret that religion, who has the correct understanding of it. Well, one of the misperceptions uh, that we may have, that is we, the, the people in the United States, have about Islam is that it, we because of the, the present historical circumstances, to see it unidimensionally, to, to not see its complexity. Yeah. But, but uh, as you make very clear in, in your book, which I have here, with this, this uh, encyclopedic uh, uh, history of Islamic societies, uh, uh, is the, 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 the extent to which uh, Islam... Uh, interacts with local environments, local societies, local settings, yeah. and, and in many ways is changed by it, uh, and then in turn changes those settings, uh, which, which creates a, 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 a dynamic that is uh, very different in its results than, than what we see when, when we focus, say, for example, on, on, on terrorism or political fanatics or whatever. Yeah, Definitely. 
I mean, e- even uh, uh, today, uh, just to give a few illustrations, it's, it's, Islam is just different uh, in different regions. Uh, it, the on-the-ground practice, if you go to look at people and how they worship and talk to them about what they believe, Islam is just different everywhere. It differs by class. It differs by educational level. So today, for example, uh, uh, you find uh, uh, the Muslim purists, the political Muslims, uh, but you also find uh, liberal Muslims, uh, not only in Europe and America, but in Iran and Egypt and Pakistan and Indonesia, people who believe that Islam is compatible uh, with uh, uh, contemporary democratic uh, values and uh, has the same commitment uh, to uh, civil rights and human rights. Uh, there are people uh, who uh, believe in uh, Islam as a system of strict ritual practice. There are people who believe that, that Islam is the veneration of saints and uh, don't think about these political issues at all, but go to the tomb of a holy man to make a small gift and to pray for God's help uh, as a favor to the holy man. I mean, these are very different kinds of religions almost, but it's all within the framework of Islam. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I guess a, a problem that it, it comes up in Islam that, that we need to address is uh, in these different settings, to what extent uh, Islam has been uh, able to adjust to what we call modernity to modernization, to, to embrace secularization. And, and that, that, there is no definitive answer to that question uh, uh, as I read your book. Is that correct? Or is there? <laughs> no, there yeah. isn't. <laughs> yeah. there, 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 there are different responses. Some people, uh, some Muslims have adopted it uh, uh, Certainly the uh, upper classes, the middle classes, all over the Muslim world live in what is now a Western lifestyle. Uh, They may be very devout Muslims, but the physical style of life (coughs) is basically Western. They adopt all the technologies. Um, Many people adopt the politics uh, that come from Europe and America, Uh, political parties, democratic politics, as I mentioned, respect for civil rights, uh, human rights. so just as Christians remain Christian or Jews, Jews, but live in a modern world in a modern fashion, so do many Muslims. At the other extreme, there are many people who reject this kind of Western modernity as a fundamentally corrupt way to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, they reject its materialism, its emphasis on you know, consumer goods. Uh, they reject its political values because they believe that there is an absolute truth and that people have to live by that revealed truth. They don't accept the idea of, uh, of a sort of a marketplace of political competition. Um, those are the two principal factors. Mm-hmm. It, let's talk about politics and religion. Were you going yeah. to say something? Did you have another uh, no, thought? No, I thought I had a, a further idea about why they oppose the contemporary world. They oppose, oh, there is, it's important. Yeah. They oppose contemporary states. The states many people, Muslims live in, are not democratic states. Yeah. They're, they're military regimes or they're tiny oligarchies, even family regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
though, insofar as those regimes commonly identify themselves as modern and secular, the opposition identifies itself as Muslim and anti-secular. Right. So, so in a way, what what Islam is it, because uh, of its placidity, in a way, is is what is the situation that we're talking about? In other words, because it it seems w- with a with a core set of tenets, it it seems to take a very different shape. Yes, in, in where it's located and so on. Well, it, it does, and I think uh, again, uh, I don't want you to think that Islam is different in doing this from other religions. I mean, people adopt adapt these basic beliefs and principles to a given circumstantial situation, and they look to holy texts for guidance, but they can come out with different interpretations and different sense of what is called for, even reading the same text or reading the Quran. They, some people will quote one verse as critical, and some people will quote another. Mm-hmm. Yes, but Islam is very adaptable. So are other religions. Any religion that has billions or a billion or more adherents is in practice extremely adaptable. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about politics and, and Islam as, as one uh, looks at your work and, and looks at the sweep of Islamic history. Uh, it, it becomes very clear again that, that 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 there have been different answers to this problem of whether you know r- to render onto Caesar that which is Caesar, mm-hmm. or whether you know uh, uh, the the two that is religion and the state should be combined. Uh, so, tell help us understand uh, that uh, uh, that diversity within Islam and. Uh, Help us understand whether the the faith itself points in one direction or another. Hmm. Uh, well, there are really there are really two options. Uh, um, one is uh, the example of the prophet Muhammad, in which uh, religious belief and practice, community affairs, and politics all go together. There's one leader. There's one authority. Uh, this is the life of a small, integrated community. That example goes on through the centuries in all parts of the Muslim world, and uh, since the 18th century, and right down to the present, it's invoked as an ideal a model. This is the just kind of society. The other uh, model is one in which there is a separation of uh, state uh, and religion. Uh, the political elites are one group of people, the religious teachers and their followers are another group of people. Uh, politics is understood to operate by secular norms. Uh, the community of religious believers uh, follows religious norms. Um, there's a, pr- a separation in practice which is never quite recognized in principle or in theory. But that separation in practice historically is the ordinary way in which uh, large-scale countries and societies are governed, right down to the modern national state. So the practice and the theory, the practice and the ideal are are in contrast. And the ideal, the unity of state and and religion and politics, is now invoked as an criticism of and as an alternative to the actual practice. 
And in uh, Afghanistan and the Taliban would be an extreme uh, uh, example of that? That's an extreme example of trying to establish an Islamic state, uh, one which enforces uh, what the Taliban think of as the right religious rules. Mm-hmm. You, you make the point in your work again and again that, that uh, the Islamic identity is, goes with multiple identities and, mm-hmm. and, and that where uh, Islam has uh, uh, flowered, it, it's really been uh, as part of uh, a complex uh, civilization with, which it, it both defines and is shaped by. Yeah. Well, um, uh, if you look at, if you talk to individuals, I think if you could talk to anybody in the past and in the present, most people have, uh, as you say, multiple levels of identity. Uh, they're Muslims, but that's not the only thing. They're also uh, members of a, of a family or a tribe. Uh, they're people from a particular location. Uh, they have a profession. Uh, they have political loyalties uh, uh, of, of one sort or another. Uh, they have uh, uh, clientele ties. They have economic interests. And all of these, uh, uh, these complex connections and, uh, uh, conflict with each other sometimes. And people have to reconcile uh, just which level is important in any given case. So sometimes they invoke uh, being Muslim. Sometimes they invoke their family's financial interests. Uh, that gives people everywhere a great variety of options. It's an extreme and it's still a very rare case that people will say they're Muslims only, that they have in fact no other loyalties, no other commitments. Uh, you can only see that in the case of uh, political extremists and terrorists. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why they are free from the obligations that keep everybody else uh, integrated in a society. That's uh, rare. Yeah. Another uh, subject... I, guess I just want to add, yeah. we shouldn't think of Islam as a single thing that defines a people. It's just one, it will be an important factor that operates in their thinking. Mm-hmm. And then in different settings have... Different has varying, settings has different mm-hmm. varying weights. Yeah. Yeah. D- different very much. Now, one one matter uh, of of interest, obviously, uh, is is the status, the role, the place of women mm. in in Islam. And and again, in looking at that subject in your book, one you 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 uh, expose a, a much more complicated. Uh, history and evolution of, of the status of women than uh, uh, the common perception in the, in the yeah. United States, say, is. Uh, uh, help us understand uh, the complexity of, of that status and, and, and how it has changed over time. Hmm. Well, this is not only complicated, this is a very controversial <laughs> yeah, subject, yeah. only even dangerous. Um, the way I see it, uh, you know, there are certain guidelines which you, you kind of know. Generally speaking, uh, Muslim societies are patriarchal societies. Uh, and so men are expected to, uh, uh, to have a dominant position, uh, to uh, have the last say in the family. Uh, people uh, commonly think of men as being 
superior in, in reason to women. Uh, they think of a social order as, as correct if a man dominates his family. Uh, but when you get down to the reality of how people actually relate to each other, again, the differences are, are enormous. And you see every kind of a, a, a situation. Uh, you see typical patriarchal families. Uh, you see uh, nuclear families uh, uh, where a husband and wife are in practice uh, co-equal. Uh, uh, whatever family decisions are made or negotiated, they're discussed. Uh, between husband and wife. Uh, you see families uh, where by force of personality or uh, uh, force of uh, uh, sometimes family status or riches, uh, you see families where in reality the woman dominates the household and uh, uh, if she respects the traditional practice, uh, she doesn't do this in public, but in fact she dominates the household. So uh, you see a great spectrum uh, of, um, of, of behavior in real situations and a, and a very diverse uh, possibilities for the distribution of power between men and women, whatever the formal norms of the society. Uh, now this is changing in contemporary times, in modern times it changes uh, because uh, first uh, the education of women is becoming a universal value. And the more women are educated, the more they demand in terms of uh, career opportunities, respect, influence on family matters. Uh, this is almost universal. So you get nowadays, you get even conservative Muslims, even reformist or revivalist Muslims, make allowance for this reality, favor the education of women, or can, they don't all, mm -hmm. but some do. Uh, they favor the education of women, and they're, much as they will stress the superior prerogatives of men, their real operating model is the nuclear family. Um, once you get educated women, I think people go through the same process we've been through. Well, then women want careers and work. That is extremely controversial, uh, because conservative Muslims think of that as taking the woman out of the family uh, subjecting her to temptations and influences that are extra-familial, and they are still largely, not entirely, but largely opposed to that. Mm. But it, it changes, e education, is, uh, education and the influence of the media uh, are terrifically important forces uh, affecting the status of women today. You, you suggest that the veil is, it has, can, can have double meanings, basically. Yeah. Talk, a, talk a little about that. In other words, so yeah. that, that it, it, it doesn't necessarily just indicate uh, their subjugation uh, within Islamic yeah. society. Well, since, I mean, my, my main point of view is that there are always multiple situations. Mm -hmm. It can mean very different things. Mm -hmm. It can mean just that, the very traditional seclusion of women in the household. Uh, nobody sees their face in the market. Uh, they don't go out. They only have women friends. They're cloistered in the family. Uh, it can mean that. It can also mean almost the opposite. For example, uh, in Egypt, which has a very strong uh, Islamic movement, uh, university women, uh, uh, I would say the majority of university women now wear the veil. And they wear the veil, seems to me, as a way 
of going ahead with their education and career careers, uh, making a space in a society of men who hear a certain message from that. The message is, I'm a serious professional person. I'm not here to be flirted with or trifled with. Mm. I have conservative moral values, and uh, I want to make a career. I'm entitled to a career, and I'm a good woman anyway. And it's very functional for, and it works very well since so many women, for example, coming to Cairo, men and women come from villages, have very conservative families. This reassures the family mm. that a young woman is behaving properly in the city and they don't have to worry about her. Mm-hmm. So that the veil which we associate with tradition really can be a, a, a vehicle for modernization, for upward yes. mobility, and for actually bringing modernization. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, as a historian of, of Islamic societies and somebody who's, who's spent uh, a lot of time understanding its complexity, its diversity, what was your reaction to the reaction of people in this country to the events of 9-11. One has the sense, uh, after reading your book, I I was reminded of the the, the quote from the Bible, now we see uh, uh, darkly, uh, then shall we see face to face. I I have the sense that we have a very limited vision of what Islam is, whether it's our adversary, you know, its implication in the events of 9-11. Yeah. And, and uh, is that a fair reading of, of what your reaction was to the way we are reacting? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Uh, but I guess what I think is that's a disaster. And it's a disaster for Muslims as well as for Americans and the Westerners. Uh, uh, that's a kind of uh, uh, shocking, uh, what to say, uh, exaggeration of the element of conflict and rivalry. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes the situation to many people look like a conflict of civilizations, mm-hmm. which it isn't, I mm-hmm. think, in, 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 uh, in reality. The 9-11 the event. The 9-11 event, event makes that. It, yeah. It makes it seem that way to Americans. It makes it seem that way to Muslims. Mm-hmm. This, you know, especially with the American uh, 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 military response. Um, so I think that's a disaster, and it obscures uh, the fact that in so many deep ways we actually have a common civilization, both on secular and religious bases, and we have so many common interests, or at least. Uh, uh, reasons for good relations, cooperative relations. You know, we have close political ties, we have business ties. Uh, there are millions and millions of Muslims living now in Europe and America. Um, so we have shared worlds, and it obscures the importance of these shared worlds. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really unfortunate. Now, now is, is uh, I guess, at the, the core... Uh, uh, of Huntington's argument about a clash of civilization is is a is a clash of values. Is that what he's trying to get at, or do you have a sense of that? Um, I, I I don't think uh, that there is re- there there is there is a clash of. I mean, you have to take people at their word in certain ways. 
there is a clash of values in the minds of the extremists mm -hmm. and in the minds of people who want an extreme response to mm -hmm. this. You can make it into a clash of values. People will try to do that as a justification for the conflict of interests or for the justification for the violence. They want to say there are deep principles at stake. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of choice we make as to how we see it. Uh, but I don't think that's uh, inherently the case. And I think uh, what we need is a, is a supple politics that distinguishes violent enemies with whom we are going to be at war uh, from uh, the average uh, Muslim with whom we have no reason f uh, to be in conflict with. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, you're really suggesting that, that there is really a, a, a compatibility of the values, the religious values, than, that, that, than we realize. There's actually. more of that uh, and more of a basis for it than we commonly think. Yeah. Now, what... Help us understand uh, the way Islam or parts of Islam interface with globalization and American power. Because it, it seems to be the case that this, this argument about uh, the clash of civilization goes on to draw conclusions not just about philosophical values but about a mm. conflict of interest. Mm. Uh, and the question is, is that right, and is it ever right, and if it is right sometimes, what, what, is, the, what, it, what is it about particular interfaces that leads certain you know, Islamic radicals uh, uh, to see the opportunity with globalization to mobilize people and mm -hmm. to wreck that animosity toward the United States and its power? Well... Um to ask complicated questions yeah, and think, right. figure yeah, out how to respond. That's right. Um, well, let, let me say first about globalization. There, there are different levels of it. On a, on a cultural level, uh, uh, the U.S. in particular, but also Europe, is it an extraordinary, is extraordinarily forceful in promoting a consumer culture. Uh, and all over the world, what people want in everyday life is you know, Coca-Cola, jeans, movies. Uh, those must be the principal American mass products sold everywhere. And they're very important to people all over the world because what they symbolize is liberation from tradition. Liberation from traditional restraints on behavior, liberation from family control, liberation from political control. And all over the world, there's no denying that that has enormous appeal. Uh, however, however shallow we might think it, it's a symbol of something really potent. And so it's an enormous threat to, uh, to conservative uh, uh, milieus, uh, to uh, societies uh, which still live in small uh, family and village uh, uh, communities. It's an enormous threat. It dissolves uh, the family. People want to go out and make money rather than remain at home mm -hmm. and uh, live under the authority of uh, Papa and Mama. So that is a huge threat. And uh, Muslims, uh, conservative Muslims all over the world, see it as a threat rather than as an opportunity. Many do. Um, that's one dimension of it that, that makes the unease and uh, even and the hostility with the West very widespread in the Muslim countries. Then there are uh, reasons uh, politically why 
the uh, strength of the West uh, provokes antagonism, and that is essentially because uh, the United States backs the existing governments uh, in most countries. And backing those governments, uh, we help those governments in Muslim countries to put down, to refuse reforms and to put down the opposition. So the uh, Muslim radicals uh, have, uh, see local governments and the U.S. behind them as their dual enemy. Uh, and in that sense, globalization, the ever greater influence of, uh, of America around the world is provoking a resistance and a reaction. And in the last decade, the focal point of that resistance has begun to shift from uh, trying to attack local governments to trying to attack the United States. I think that's what we see uh, uh, in the World Trade Center. And there is an emergence of something in a way of a, of a new variant on the notion of a global Muslim identity that, yeah. that, that relates to identifying with Muslim resistance movements in different parts of the world uh, and so on and, and so forth. Yes. See, Muslims are being affected. That, that is yet another way that globalization mm -hmm. impacts uh, Muslims. Um, uh, Muslims also like uh, uh, just, just like uh, European or American professionals and uh, intellectuals and businessmen uh, and uh, uh, people in any technology live in a global environment. Uh, the national state becomes much less important for people in, in big corporations, uh, in uh, advanced fields of, uh, of development. Uh, so many more people uh, are involved in international uh, trade or international economic exchanges. Uh, than ever before, right? That's the primary impact of globalization. And the technology diff allows for a universal diffusion of people's ideas, right? The web, the radio, mm. the web, uh, TV. So there are lots of Muslims uh, who no longer feel an allegiance to a particular national state. They feel they're cosmopolitans, only they're cosmopolitan Muslims. So they think of themselves as representing the true and universal uh, version of Islam uh, without the compromising loyalties to, uh, to uh, individual countries. And that's a growing phenomenon. And you find not, you know, uh, only a tiny percentage of people represent it, but it's a growing phenomenon. How do you explain uh, al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden in, in, in the context of this discussion? Is he a particular variant of this, or is, is all that you said applied to him? Well, he's a particular variant in the extremism of, uh, of waging war directly to, uh, to, uh, to cope. Uh, but he's typical in a lot of ways. Uh, the way I see him, he... He is really a Saudi opposed to, originally, a Saudi opposed to the Saudi regime. Uh, he opposes them from a still more purist uh, religious position than the Saudis take. He opposes them as, as corrupted and unworthy of continuing to rule. He can't make any political progress in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he... Uh, because he identifies with Islam as the legitimating 
truth that justifies his opposition, uh, he looks for causes abroad that he can support to help the uh, to help the pure and good Muslims as he sees them. So Afghanistan was his first range of activity. And there, uh, he sees everywhere that it's American power that stands behind uh, the uh, evil local regimes. And uh, that uh, uh, since there's no field of opportunity at home, uh, he's looking for a way, he's looking for found ways to attack the United States. So he has that global identity. Uh, he has the anti-national, anti-Saudi uh, basis for it. Uh, but uh, he represents an extremist minority that believes that the only, the only proper response is violence. In, in the concluding part of your book, you, you talk about uh, the Islamic revival as, mm -hmm. as a way to get a handle on recent events. And, and you, you argue that it's really much more complex than we normally look at it. That we, you know, we, we want to fall into the trap of saying the terrorists, the jihadists, are the only element of, 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 uh, of revival, you know, in a negative sense, obviously. But, but there are other forms of this. And, and they, what are those other forms and, and what is the, the, the diversity that, that they represent that we're, sometimes we're not seeing? Yeah. Well, the... Uh the other forms are basically, um, uh, what to say, religious revival. Uh, people uh, preach, go to mosques, listen to uh, uh, sermons and tapes of sermons and so on. There are uh, educational movements that want to uplift the condition of Muslims uh, uh, by providing an education. There are social welfare movements, very important part of the revival, community organizing to provide uh, everything from charitable support to families, uh, uh, jobs for men out of work, uh, uh, to intervene in family matters, uh, to uh, resolve, uh, help community help to resolve, you know, like social service help to resolve family problems, uh, everything down to picking up the garbage and monitoring the water supply and talking to government officials to make sure that this check comes through and it's, it's political party, welfare party kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what the Islamic uh, revival represents everywhere. But it's done on a religious basis, on a faith. Mm -hmm. It's a faith-based revival. So people, uh, people motivate it and explain it in religious terms. And that, it that is the much more common and almost universal form of Islamic revival. And, and there, there is also a political reform movement that, that's not necessarily directed to, to combining right. uh, uh, traditional Islam with the control of the state. Or are they linked? Well, uh, 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 well you, find, you find different kinds of... Uh, 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 there's a spectrum here, too. Um, you find political movements where uh, people try to tra translate this kind of base, this party machine base, into, into politics. They want to run for parliament, they want to get seats in parliament, they want to influence legislation. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have many opportunities to do that. The most uh, uh, visible one right now is the outcome of the elections in Turkey, uh, where what was avowedly an Islamic party three years ago 
uh, presents itself now in neutral reformist terms, but everyone knows this is motivated by Islamic welfare Mm -hmm. considerations. Well, they've taken power, and I think they are going to try to function in the parliamentary uh, framework of Turkey uh, to uh, advance their interests. I see them as, in effect, the equivalent of a Christian Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. They are a Muslim Democratic Party. Uh, Then you do have movements that are broad-based politically, but whose ultimate agenda is really to create an Islamic state. You Mm -hmm. have that, too. Problem in most of the Muslim world is that neither local governments nor uh, nor the United States is willing to give these parties a chance mm-hmm. in, a, in, an, in a fair democratic electoral uh, competition and see what they do. Everyone's afraid that if they come to power, they'll immediately uh, turn radical. Sometimes it seems we, that is the United States, in our foreign policy are our, are our own worst enemy in the sense that a a narrow focus on terrorism leads us to policies toward particular regimes that that furthers the the success of the very uh, radical fundamentalists we oppose. Yeah. Uh, It seems to be the case in Pakistan, for example. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that's a dilemma that uh, uh, we've never been able to resolve. I mean, the the great classic case is the Shah of Iran. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, whom we backed entirely, thinking that that would be uh, our man in the Middle East. And that didn't work. And uh, all other regimes, uh, you know, uh, the, the struggle is reduced basically to a struggle of force. When you have a repressive regime and you get a violent opposition, there's no middle ground for political competition. That's very dangerous. Are you, are you as a historian, frustrated by the, the, uh, the limited extent to which a historian's understanding of Islam is, is not reflected in the policies of your own government? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I could do. I'm sure I could advise how to do a better job. Yeah. I'm not sure I could get it done. <laughs> no, <that's right. laughs> uh, e- yes, and I think you can see uh, what my frustration is, that the problem is not seen in a large enough context mm-hmm and that the solutions uh, people try to get uh, are not, uh, uh, what to say, sufficiently various and multiple-leveled solutions. Uh, We go too much to the same devices of uh, military power and economic bribery. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were advising students how to prepare for the future, Let's say they have an interest in, you know, in Islam and dealing with the Islamic world. Do you have any advice for them to how to prepare hmm. for that future? Uh, be prepared for anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, don't expect anything to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, no special advice. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think uh, as you say, uh, as you mentioned before, we live in an increasingly integrated global society, and I think students really should know at least one foreign language well Mm -hmm. and be able to function in a foreign environment, whatever one they choose, uh, and they should prepare themselves, uh, you know, for the possibility of internationally related careers uh, in, you know, through whatever disciplines they want, political science, history, 
sociology, uh, public health, conservation and resources. There are all kinds of options, but I think all the options will increasingly have a global dimension. Mm-hmm. And, and is there any particular lesson that they might draw from uh, your intellectual odyssey if, if they were to watch this tape? Uh, what lesson would I like them to draw? Either, yeah, oh, or, you know, or, no, or, or do, no, you're yeah. you're pushing me over the Yeah, <laughs> that's here. right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, open-mindedness, open-mindedness uh, uh, to how truly rich the world is, not to close it down uh, by thinking it has to fit in a few boxes. I can't resist the urge in the few minutes remaining to, to link your, your interest in photography to your interest in, in the Muslim world. And I know that you take photographs of uh, windows, shopping windows, yeah. and then in that view uh, see multiple perspectives. I gather. <laughs> and in fact, you say on your website, uh, what I see in these pictures is my childhood roaming the streets in New York, finding a city of pleasures, drama and excitement, full of towering skyscrapers, trendy people, and on and on. So, so it's, a, it's a kind of a, a, a kaleidoscope of unexpected images in yeah. the setting. Well, it, that's really what you found in the Islamic world. Is that fair, or is that well, is that stretching? It? <laughs> no, actually, you you've uh, you've explained it to me because I, <laughs> okay. I couldn't have answered your question. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that quote goes on to say you also find the tawdriness and uh, dirtiness and yeah, sure. even misery of yeah. city life yeah. too. Uh, well, maybe that is a fair image. Yeah, I, I, I want to get into an image, something of the complication and variety of the world. And so the way to, that I go at it is I'm looking into a window, but I'm really taking a picture of what's in there, meshed in with what's back of me, which is a cityscape, mm-hmm. city environment. To, to, to kind of reveal the, the situational complexity, to, yeah. That's right, in one image, yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, which, which combines these uh, different facets of your multi-talented uh, life, Ira, and your intellectual odyssey, I want to thank you uh, for being here today and talking with us about Islam. Well, thank you, Harry. This was very stimulating for me. There are certainly wonderful questions. Thank you, and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.